It's September 2010, and this is the Incomparable Podcast. We're back on the Incomparable Podcast. The topic today is movies. It's freeform because we had lots of really grand designs, big plans, and pants to match, and uh, they they failed miserably. So instead, it's like the potpourri category of uh, the Incomparable. I'm Jason Snell. Joining me today on the podcast, we have from the wilds of Massachusetts, Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Ah, it's nice to be back. It seems like it's been so long since the last time you, I was on a podcast. You're like on the podcast every week now. What's that about? You got nothing Almost every do? day, really. You're, you're a, you're a four-tool um, geeky podcast guy. I, I, I got it all. And joining me from the wilds of Southern California is Ben Boychuk. Hi, Ben. Hello, my fine feathered friends. There are no feathers here. <laughs> This is not the Feathery Podcast. That's a different podcast. Oh, darn. I think I'm supposed to be on a different call. Uh, so movies movies is the topic, and I know you guys are movie lovers. I would actually thought I would start by bringing up the topic of movie music, because that's like the double bonus of geekiness. And in particular, I was going to talk about, since this is the Incomparable Podcast, music in genre movies. Um, ben and I have had a running conversation about the Star Trek soundtracks I, that is exactly what i was just thinking when you said that because i have i have opinions <laughs> that's that's good and, and then um i know dan you're a big john williams fan and a big uh, star wars and indiana jones fan as well so we can talk john williams who has never scored a star trek movie by the way he has folks. not but he has scored many other large franchises and parts of them besides the star wars and the indiana jones and he did the first three i believe harry potter movies at least the first two i think I think he did the third one as well. I think that was the last one that he did. Was did he do that, or did they just sort of play cues from the other movies? It, starting <laughs> starting in four, they actually play cues from like the you know it's other composers using the themes that he established in the first three. Nice, nice. Sorry, motifs. I should say if I want to sound all sophisticated. So so in this discussion of composers, where you guys are probably more, much more well versed than I am, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the first name here, which is um, Michael Giacchino, hmm? who is an excellent composer. Um, not only of the latest Star Trek movie, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot, lots of the recent Pixar's, which are, I think, excellent. The Incredibles is a great score. Up has a very good score. He scored Ratatouille, too, didn't he? Yes. And also scored Lost, which yep. I think is one of the best scored TV shows of all time. It's interesting because the, the music on Lost is very subtle, right? Like, you almost <laughs> don't notice it. There's, there, there's Except when it goes... Yeah, I mean it's very it's a very weird show in that regard. That was because, my Giacchino there. That yes, <laughs> because it, it, they only use it at very sparsely, and it's very subtle when it comes up, and you don't always think about it. And I think that's that's good, like because in that show it would be very easy for it to be distracting or overwhelming or take you out of the moment. But it, they, they do such a he does such a great job there of of reinforcing the feelings that, that you want to experience, the sort of the mystery, the suspense aspects of it. And yet there are those moments where it comes to the fore. And sometimes, I, I guess this is, would be a good question to ask you guys in general about scores, mostly for films, because you don't usually talk about it, although we could talk about it with Lost. Do you notice the music in a film and think, oh, wow, that's a really nice piece of music? Or do you say, well, you know, you're not really doing your job if I'm noticing the music and not what's on the screen? Because there are some moments in Lost where I actually felt like that and I, and I liked it. I, I didn't dislike it. That when they launched the, the rap at the end of the first season and there's yeah. this incredibly uplifting score and I felt myself thinking wow this is great music for what's going on it took me out of the moment maybe a little bit but I didn't care because it was such a beautiful piece of work so is that valid to appreciate the music while you're watching something or is that a, a failing of either the music or the movie well I think so I know I think so I think I think at, at its best uh, a score can be 
like uh, another character in the film or can really, really complement the film. I mean, some of the most memorable films that you'll see, you, you, you often associate with the music. I mean, you could think, of course, of Star Wars and, and the Indiana Jones movies. And, and I, think, I think certainly the last Star Trek film, the, the, the Giacchino Star Trek uh, is another great example of that. I mean, that was a. Um, I read an article uh, not too long ago about uh, how he approached it, and and um, he had said, uh, Giacchino did that he um, was a little bit overwhelmed because you know there's a there's a great tradition. You know, Jerry Goldsmith did all you know uh, some of the original scores, and then uh, James Horner did um, two very very good scores for for Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three, and so he had that you know, very much on his mind and, and he was he was sort of struggling with it. And then he sat down with Abrams, JJ Abrams and, and they talked about it and they decided that this this movie was going to be a departure from that and that he should really approach it not as a space adventure film, but as a film about uh friends. About these these friends who would become lifelong friends uh, and how they got together. And so um I don't know that that necessarily comes out when you see the movie, but if you think about it, knowing that, and, and you listen to it again, um, you you get some of that some of that pathos and some of that high adventure stuff, and I, I think it works. I think it works very well. I liked I liked Giacchino's score. I actually bought this the new Star Trek score um, not too long ago, and I like it though. I think that the soundtrack, the uh, the album version that that I bought, which I bought from iTunes, felt very disjointed to me, and, and that's difficult. I think I think soundtrack albums or score albums have really have a have a problem with that sometimes, in that they get sort of chopped up. And the cues aren't always exactly the same as they are in the movie because in the movie they're also edited to fit various scene lengths and stuff like that. Um, and so I found that the Star Trek album to have a couple outstanding tracks on it, but at the same time to feel very disjointed. For example, you know, the use of some of the central themes, um, which I remembered very vividly from the movie because they really stood out for me. Seem to only come up a couple times in the in the course of the entire album, right. whereas I felt like they happened more in the movie, and so right. I was you know a little bit the disappointed Spock with theme that. Is so um, I think affecting in the movie and, and effective, and it, on the soundtrack you you almost miss it. I, I I kept saying, oh yeah, that was the Spock theme, and we'll never hear it. Again. There is a uh, there is a deluxe version of the soundtrack. Uh, it came <laughs> out course. and it, it went out of print after about five minutes because they only pressed like five thousand copies of it, but. Uh, I got one, and it's um, it's the complete score in order of, of, of uh, appearance in the film, and it's uh, awake. I agree with you completely that uh, the the standard album version is kind of a disappointment in that respect. The deluxe version is great, and if you can get it get a hold of it, more power to you. I'm I'm going to look on Amazon right now. <laughs> <laughs> you might be you able to, to, to find eBay. one. Yeah, you might have to go to eBay for that. All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad to know that something like that exists because I find that that's a huge problem. I mean, like movies, we're talking, you know, movies that are a couple hours long and, you know, a soundtrack that's an hour, sure, you know, they, they might sort of hit the high notes, as it were, if you'll pardon the expression. But the, I always feel like there's so much missing um, that 
it's it's great when you can get a larger version of the uh you know that contains the entire score i had this issue I'm, i will bring up a score that i really like or just sort of as an aside um was for a, a terrible movie is the phantom menace score which is actually a very good score for I have that, that cd yeah. that, that's a great score it's it's sort of john williams getting to revisit that that language that he he, he hadn't spoken in in years and, and it was and really yeah, nice it's really good. more to the point there's a double cd edition of that that is vastly <laughs> superior to the single yeah, edition yeah just but a terrible movie but a terrible movie Great scores for for bad films. I mean, as far as Star Trek is concerned, there is a deluxe edition of the Star Trek Three soundtrack that just came out a couple of months ago. Terrible movie, but it's a really good score. And in some, I, in some ways, I think it may be even a little bit better than Star Trek Two because uh, both of those were were composed by James Horner in the early part of his career before he started repeating himself. <laughs> and um, and uh, it, there's some no there's some really really nice stuff on there and the, and the difference between Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three at least as far as the soundtrack goes is I think Horner had a larger orchestra to work with for Three than he did with Two. Well, you get the sense from the liner notes of the special edition of, of the Star Trek II soundtrack that Horner was sort of hired because he was young and cheap yeah. and they didn't give him anything to do. And, right. and then with the third one, they're like, all right, kid, you proved yourself. Here, have an orchestra. Right, right. And, and, it, and it shows. And um, in particular, the, the cue uh, where they're stealing the Enterprise from... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great, great cue. And so that alone was, was worth uh, buying the deluxe edition for since the, the original soundtrack disc is long out of print. Uh, but the the deluxe edition just came out. I think it's still available, and I think it's reasonably priced. Well, so. I had both of those on tape, on cassette tape, <laughs> back in the day. But but Star Trek Three, not terrible, by the way. I think it's mediocre, but I I I don't think it was a terrible movie. Star Trek Five, yeah, yeah. which actually had Jerry Goldsmith revisiting his right. Star Trek the Motion Picture score. Now that's bad. Now let me tell you though, the Star Trek the Motion Picture score I maintain is an awesome score and i have the uh the two disc set of that that came out a couple several years ago now um and i think that and i recently ripped it to my to my uh computer since i rarely play cds anymore and i just love that i mean not only for the fact that goldsmith created the theme that would then go on to be used as the theme for the next generation and even in fact i think goldsmith's version in the motion picture is slightly different and superior i would argue The whole sort of experimental aspects with the electronic aspects um, and, you know, dealing with the, the soundtrack for V'ger and all of the, the sort of wacky parts, I love. I think it's great. I think it is a fantastic score. So I can't speak highly enough of that score. Though, again, the movie itself is... Uh, 
weird and kind of mediocre. Yeah, yeah. That's the movie that really um, needed an editor. Uh, like an, well, and then and then they released the special edition and, it's and added like huh. twenty minutes more of flybys. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But the beauty of those flyby shots is that the music is quite quite oh, yeah, um, entertaining. And I've been trying to on your recommendation. I do not actually own a copy of um, the Star Trek II score, which I keep trying to find, but it's not available anywhere as a electronic download. Right. It was just yeah. the Silver Screen Music uh, CD. That's the last CD. That's the only CD I bought in the last three years. Is that is that because it was only available on CD. See, that's so frustrating. I hate it when that happens. But I thought I always thought it was funny because you mentioned the, the tape score. And I remember that when I was in high school, my friend Evan had uh, the tape of the Star Trek motion picture score. And I borrowed that from him for a really long time. And I think I even dubbed my own copy of it at one point onto a cassette tape because I, I loved it so much. Here's a little known fact. And actually, I don't know if, if Ben even knows this. Um, I was disappointed when they did the complete Star Trek II uh, CD, though, that, that it's missing a track that was on my tape. What's that? Really? Um, at the end of the second side of the cassette of the Star Trek II soundtrack, boy, we're deep in the weeds, aren't we? Um, <laughs> it, it, you know how on cassette tapes and records at the time, but especially tapes, you'd have side one and side two, and they would be not quite the same length, and you'd end up with like a big gap on, on at the end of the tape that you'd have to fast forward through to flip yep. it over and listen again. After about, I think, several minutes of silence at the end of the Star Trek II soundtrack, there's like a three-minute track that is like a pop remix of the theme of Star Trek II with drum machines and it's like a it, I don't know where it came from I don't know who did it but uh, my friends and I in high school thought it was really cool and we like I, a friend of mine made a montage of the best scenes of Star Trek 2 and and dubbed it over that that pop <laughs> remix thing how, how is that not made it to YouTube I, well I don't think I have a copy of it anymore but but um uh, or it would be on YouTube now but I I it's funny, and I was hoping somebody would explain in the liner notes what the heck that even was, because I don't even know if it appeared on the record, but I know that it was hidden away. It was a secret bonus track on the tape of Star Trek Two. So maybe James Horner knows. Maybe he doesn't ever want that to be heard again. Yeah, I don't know. Could be. Let's talk Giacchino for one more minute, though. I, I, I wanted to... I'm curious what you think his best work is because he's done a lot of uh, different film work now with Pixar and with with Star Trek and uh, and on on TV with Lost. Any any uh, opinions about that? Because I, I think Incredibles is the one that kills me because that's like a note perfect um, John Barry esque uh, James Bond score with the brass, and I I love the Incredibles. Score. I don't own a lot of his albums, but I will say that from you know my memories of watching the movie, I thought that the score to Up was really really uh fantastic and also just because i think you know my given my sort of passing familiarity with gita kino i think that was very different from anything else i'd heard from at that point which was primarily like lost um right and i and i thought that you know the up score was so it was so sweet and and melodious and fit so well with the story that it really I there's you know the, the theme that they played in you know the Oscars whenever they show a clip and they play sort of the central motif of that uh, of the movie and it's just it's such a it's such a note perfect beautiful little little piece I just saw an interview with him where where I'm not sure whether it's it, I could misinterpret what he said or whether he actually meant it this way. But the impression I got was that he believes that 
his score saved that movie <laughs> because he really? believes that he what, he what he said was something like if i if i don't score the the montage right where you really get feel the emotion of of the guy and his wife and their life together and him losing her he said by the time you get to the point where there are dogs hijacking airplanes you're just gonna be checked out and say and i thought that was really interesting and i'm not quite sure whether he was misquoted or what's going on there because he's essentially saying and, and he may be right is that unless you make that emotional investment in that montage which is kind of amazing and which the music is a major part of because there is no dialogue there it right. is just the music and the visuals right right that 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 movie might not play as well if you if you don't get the emotional investment to ground you before you have talking dogs who are running around around a, 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 a dirigible, a Zeppelin, if you will. Uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think Up is, is probably my favorite. And for, for just that reason, I mean, it, it really, that, you know, that, that first six, seven minutes of that you know, film with that montage, it just rips your heart right out. It was just so good. Second, second place might be the, the Ratatouille score, which is just so charming and, you know, evocative of, of this this world that they create in Paris, but uh, I, I, I want to put in the good word for for uh, the music that got him noticed, which was his video game work and the Medal of Honor series, which I guess mm, is like right. yeah, twelve or thirteen years old now. Uh, and that that first Medal of Honor uh, score, which is on CD, it's pretty easy to get. I think it's even downloadable. It's really good, and it, you know, it's really it sounds like a film, and it's really just it's really cool. Actually, Jason, I like the incredible score, but I've kind of it's kind of third tier for me, precisely because it's a little bit too derivative of John Barry. Well, right, this is true. This is true. I I see your point. I love, I love it. I and I part of it is that I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one one more thing. For a time there, I would have said that that it would be very difficult for him to go wrong. And it's interesting that you brought up. The, the interview, which I'd, I'd love to track down and look at, that you know that his music saved, may have saved, helped save up, which is interesting, um, because his worst score by far has got to be "Land of the Lost," which was abysmally bad, and, and the music sounds like it's written to the material if you, if you hear it. Um, so he wasn't trying to save it; he was just going with I, it. I <laughs> I guess so. I saw the movie months after I because I. I have this kind of funny habit of I, I tend to buy soundtracks before I see movies, and sometimes I n- never get around to seeing the movie, but I have the soundtrack. <laughs> um, but uh, that was one where I, I had I bought the soundtrack the day it came out. I downloaded it from iTunes the day it came out, and then saw the movie uh, when it came out on DVD, and and almost didn't finish it. it, it it's really terrible, and uh, and the music. Is about this. It's very uneven. It's sort of, you know, he, he goes from slapstick to, and it just feels like he kind of phoned it in. And you know, the movie's about like that too. Dan, you were saying that you've been listening to the um, what Temple of Doom soundtrack. Yeah, I just had that on this afternoon. Actually, I don't know a year or two ago, they released a box set of all four of all. Yeah, it was all four. I hate to admit what, that there's, there's a fourth. fourth. 
that there's a fourth Indiana movie Jones there. Movie? No. But um, oh. but of all yes, four Indiana Jones. When did that come out? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It had something to do with I don't know. There was a there was a there was a skull, and I don't know. There, I have this box set that has uh, the scores for all four uh, Indiana Jones movies, and so I you know had ripped them all to my computer, and I, I like to I find that they're really helpful while working, just because there's not there's no words or anything, so you know you can kind of zone out and have that running in the background. And so I, I, the Temple of Doom is the one that I am least familiar with because I actually already owned copies of Raiders and Last Crusade, uh, you know, the, the album versions of those, uh, when before I even got the box set. I, I like to, I was listening to Temple of Doom because I don't know it as well as the others. Um, and have I think you, have it's, you seen that movie recently, by the way? Uh, you know, I, I'm not gonna lie, I've actually only seen it maybe once. I've which only is, seen it once. I, I, it's, I've never had a desire to revisit it, and I'm now wondering if it's as bad as I remember. Honestly, the first see, I, my, the very funny experience I had with this was that when I was in high school, we used to do these like movie marathon nights for my friend's birthday. And so one time he's like, oh, well, you know, we did Star Wars last year. We'll do Indiana Jones this year. And so we watched Raiders and then we put in Temple of Doom and watched the first 10 minutes um, right up to the part where they jump out of the plane. And then they right. said, the rest of this movie's no good. Yeah, Stopped well, it. And we went on to Last Crusade. I did see the first 10 minutes of it again on cable, and I watched it up until they jump out of the plane, and, and then I said, all right, that's it. That, that entire first scene is fantastic. And actually, on the soundtrack, I really love the Kate Capshaw singing the Chinese version of Anything Goes, um, which is just kind of a... It's a bizarre little kind of fun musical number one of the funniest things in in the entire indiana jones series is that is that moment i love that moment where he's standing at the door of the plane having finally escaped and he shouts nice try lao che and closes the door to reveal that he's on a lao che air freight plane i love yes. that that is so funny and then they're in the plane and they jump out and it, it, you i mean it's not the rest VHS of the movie is not awful there are some great sequences in but it's still a pretty good score all things considered i don't think it it resonates with me quite as much as the other two because i love those movies so much um but i think you know say what you will and i know a lot of people you know don't necessarily have the uh the uh all-embracing love of john williams that i have but um i think you know even at his worst you know the worst you can say about a john williams score is that it's you know a consummately professional score um, you know, it may not be one of his best works, but at the same time, uh, it's John Williams. And that automatically for me puts it a cut above most most things. If we had talked about Scott Pilgrim, I would have talked about the Scott Pilgrim music. Was there music? Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's good music. Yeah, good music. Great. Although, let me tell you, Inception has music. <laughs> Inception has music that beats you over the head until you are dead. Did you see the, the YouTube video about it, though? No. This is Can I, can I develop this? Because this yeah, is actually kind of fascinating. Yeah, we're not going to talk about spoilers for Inception, but, I, but the music is... is um, who is the composer of that? It's Hans Zimmer. Oh, it's Hans Zimmer, yes. And so what's fascinating oh. about this that somebody noticed is, so, you know, the sort of... The, the main cue for that movie, you've got the dong, dong, it's sort of like heavy, yeah. ponderous yes. ha- background music. Hammering into your head. Turns out that's actually, so you know in the music they use, uh, in the movie they use the, there's an Edith Piaf song that they use to synchronize, um, I don't want to try to do this without giving away too much spoiler, um, to synchronize the, the kick 
Yes, right. If you take the beginning of that song and slow it down, that's, that's what, what it, it sounds like. Uh-huh. And he did that kind of on purpose. As a, It's fascinating. Go look at the... There's a YouTube video online somewhere of right. comparing the two. And it's actually quite clever when you think of it that way. I know it is kind of a really weird, not particularly melodious uh, piece of music, but I kind of appreciated it for that aspect of it. I was going to say, who wrote it for him? <laughs> Zing! Well, obviously it was that Edith Piaf song, Just Slowed Down. Right. That was, yeah, that's the entire score. It's, yeah. it's two hours, two and a half it's hours like, of that. It's like that Justin Bieber song on Twitter that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that uh, they slow down so it's 18 minutes long and suddenly it's uh, pure mood. It's half an hour long and it's great. <laughs> and it's it's like Kataro. It's great. It's one of the most relaxing things I've heard in years. I actually heard the um it's the uh Doctor Who theme slowed down to one tenth its speed, and that's great too. That actually is you can tell where you are in the theme, but you you know, it'll take forty five minutes to get through it. It's fantastic. More music should be played at one seventh the speed. Perhaps, except for um, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, maybe not so much. Although I, I do love his, uh, I do love his score for The Rock. You love The Rock, though. I do, I do. That might be on my list of terrible movies. I was, I was going to say, one, your suggestion was we should talk about movies that other people don't like that you like. That's not the, even the worst movie that I like that other people hate. I'm sure I can come the up Rock, with a better I thought one. The Rock was okay, but I know that there are a lot of people who. It's it's know it. it's you know I will say it's Michael, this it's, it's Michael Bay's right? it's Michael Bay's best work, which is yeah. not saying much. But oh lord. Okay, Dan, you intrigue me with your words that suggest that there are other movies that you like that people hate. <laughs> um, Tell me more. I, I'm going to get castigated for this, but one of my favorite movies of, of possibly of all time is a terrible Bruce Willis vehicle called Hudson Hawk, which oh. is a is a fantastic movie because it's so, so bizarre. It is a movie that is surreal and kind of, you know, filled with terrible like plays on words and and all sorts of. Uh, like slapstick humor and yet i find utterly delightful um and it was when it came out as i believe it was you know roundly panned by pretty much everybody for being like you know bruce willis trying to basically make his own character uh movie franchise and and sort of like that was a vanity piece basically um but a, a friend of mine introduced me to it either in high school or college and I don't know, it's just, it's so over the top and so campy that I just find it utterly, you know, delightful uh, to watch and and kind of ridiculously hilarious. It's, a, you know, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, basically, uh, Bruce Willis plays a a thief, a reform thief. And so it starts with him getting out of prison, um, who is then sort of hired by this mysterious uh, benefactor to to steal things that belong to Leonardo da Vinci, actually. Um, Sounds plausible. But the best the best part of this is that, so his his partner um, his in, in crime is played by Danny Aiello, and they do their robberies by, they time their robberies, synchronizing them by singing songs. So there's this great 
number where they're robbing uh, an auction house and singing Swinging on a Star. Right. And it's fantastic. And so it's just so strange and entertaining. I don't know. It's That's one of my guilty pleasures. I saw it for the first time this year, actually. <laughs> Um, uh, some a friend of mine said, "You got to see this." Now it's really not as bad as 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 you've heard. It wasn't as bad as I've heard. Okay, I'll give you that. And and that particular robbery scene is one that that kind of sticks in my mind. Uh, but then you got Sandra Bernhardt in there, you know, chewing up the scenery, and uh, you know, it, you can kind of see why it was really so reviled. But uh, yeah, it isn't it isn't as bad as as it's been made out to be. But that doesn't make it any good. <laughs> but it's got these great, <laughs> delightful little turns from my favorite being uh, James Coburn as a uh, his um, his character's uh, name. But he is his George Kaplan. Is, yeah, it's an homage to North by Northwest. He's yeah. the when you is, call yourself a fan. Uh, sorry, I just I, it slipped my mind in all the heat because I have to defend this movie with my with my life. Um, you're out of the Hudson Hawk fan club now. What? I'm the only. I'm the president and founder of <laughs> Secretary Treasurer. Yeah, you're out. Anyway, so you're cut. now there's nobody in it anymore. Who will let you in? It's Last a, one out, turn off the lights. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun, ridiculously terrible movie. I mean, and and you get to the end, and there's a there's a scene which makes it all worthwhile because you can basically tell that they they know that this movie is is not even remotely serious, where a character who you think is dead. Um, after seeing them like go off a cliff with like an, an exploding car, sort of you know rides up, of course, kind of sooty and everything, and they're like, "Oh my God, you're alive! Like, how did you get out of the fire?" And and he goes, "Sprinkler system," <laughs> and they're all like, "That's got to be it." <laughs> You know, it's just like the, I love that sort of sheer joyful moment of the we don't even believe this ourselves, but we're having a good time. Wow. Anyways. Well, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have Maybe I wanted be on any pleasures? more podcasts? I, <laughs> I don't. I, I, I don't. I've got to think about this a little while. I, I'm such a, a rugged individualist that I actually don't know whether people like movies that I like, nor do I care. But um, I know that everybody hates M Night Shyamalan, and really, why not? Um, but not only did I kind of like The Village, but I love Unbreakable, which I think is generally thought to have been a failure because it was his follow-up to The Sixth really? Sense. Really? I thought it was well-received. They're bo- it's kind of a cult classic. And I'll say is I, it a cult I'm, classic? See, I'm, so, I'm a so fan I'm gonna, of both. I'm going to file that under cult classic then because I, I, I talk about Unbreakable with some people and they're like, ugh, you know, just, oh, come on. But I thought it was a great – uh, I, one of the better superhero movies ever to be made because it wasn't you don't go in understanding that it is a superhero movie and it's only later that you discover that Bruce Willis there he is again is actually Poncho Man and you just didn't even know that Poncho Purple Poncho Man was a superhero because he wasn't until you saw the movie and uh, realized that I, I will say that, that it's a fantastic movie let me try another one then um, I didn't think that Watchmen was terrible Oh, I, although although that scene in the with the uh, music playing and with uh, uh, what is it Hallelujah, which just destroyed that yeah. that music entirely, where they're having sex in the owl ship up in the sky was so terrible. And I think there's some questionable casting decisions. But you know, I yeah. I actually thought that that was not. Um, I I've lived with that comic book for a long time, and I actually thought that that as film adaptations that I've imagined go, it would probably have been. It was not. 
not a complete disaster. I thought that it had its heart in the right place and parts of it worked pretty well. And then other, yeah, they, <laughs> and they, and they should have cast real actors instead of pretty un, unknown people who were, they should have spent less money on some of their uh, green screen work and maybe a little more money on actual. Although actors. it had some, you know, I thought that was a movie that was flawed, but ambitious. Um, and as a result, I think, you know, there's something to be said for that. It also does have a couple of remarkable turns. I thought, um, uh, Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach, is, is oh, actually great. fantastic and probably the best performance in that entire movie, uh, as opposed to the worst yeah. performance in that entire movie, which is a toss up between uh, Malin Ackerman, Malin uh, Ackerman who is yeah. who can't act her way out of a paper bag, and Matthew Good, who is not a bad actor, but you've hit the two biggest. But he, his, with that my movie. biggest problem, his accent changes like every five minutes in that movie, and he just looks, he just cannot. Yes, pull it it's off. English, it's German, it's American, it's yeah. English, it's. But I agree that it's not it's not an awful movie. I wouldn't say that I really liked it, loved it or anything. But, you know, I agree that it was kind of a noble failure. That movie for me, that actually diminished the source <laughs> material. Ooh, uh-huh. Because I, I left that. I, I saw it with a friend of you, mine. You who, can't you can't look at Laurie now without thinking of Malin Ackerman. Uh, no, vacant it's, it's, eyes no, it's, of Malin Ackerman. <laughs> no, yes. Yes, there's that. Um, no, it. Actually, to, to, to see that movie on screen is to understand why Moore thought it couldn't and shouldn't have been made into a film because the, to actually see it play out that way is to realize that there are some real incoherent aspects of, <laughs> of the story. So it sort of exposes it exposes parts of the story that maybe were hidden in the in the comic, right? But the, but there are some real sins in that film. The the greatest of which is to give to Malin Ackerman the most important line oh. in the entire book, which was Doctor Manhattan's yes. line at the very end. Hey, I remember what John said to me once about something that was unrelated to this at all. Nothing ever, nothing ever really over. No. Nothing's ever really over, you know. He he told me that once, huh? Yeah. All right. Let's uh, no. Let's go out to eat. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Oh, well, I, let's. I'm going to dye my hair and move to California. See yeah. ya. Yeah. That. Yeah. It had a lot of flaws. I said for years that the only way that Watchmen should ever be made into anything would be a 12 part like HBO series mini series where they could do it in the 12 parts and tell these individual sort of story chunks with those endings and the cliffhangers that happen at the end of the chapters, the issues from the comic. There is some attempt, you know, uh, the game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin is being made yeah. into an HBO series. And I, I, I look at that and say, now that's, I think that's how you, how you have to do it. Or, or if you've, Something like Band of Brothers or The Pacific, where where there's a essentially a big mega miniseries. I just think that um, the the concept was just going to be too expensive for them to do it, so they end up making this movie instead. And it's funny when you say that because the first thing I thought when you, when you mentioned Watchmen is that that is my feeling on it. It's like wow, you know, this movie. The best thing I can say about this movie is it makes me long for the day when they eventually remake <laughs> it as a TV series. In the in the unappreciated category, I could throw out Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, well, how is that unappreciated? That's a, that is like one of the best movies of the but last. But nobody five even years. knows that exists, right? The Shane Black <sighs> a- uh, directed and written, and he's got a bad reputation, right? From the some of the the didn't he do last got action a, hero or something or he did some yeah he's got a bad like personal rep i feel uh, like because i think he went through some bad stuff in the 80s but he also wrote i mean the original lethal weapon right. which is actually a pretty darn good movie but that's that's um val kilmer and robert, robert Downey, Downey jr, jr. that's ben michelle that? monaghan uh no i haven't it's in the queue but uh it's very low oh yeah yeah highly recommended great i movie. saw it 
shockingly great, I actually, because I didn't have high expectations. So I, I had it recommended by somebody, and, and I, was, I could not believe I, how good it was. That was one of the last movies I saw multiple times in a movie theater. I think I actually saw huh. it three times because I kept dragging other people to it and being like, you got to see this movie. And last on my list, of course, is Spider-Man 3, which is, no, I can't even I can't even pretend that movie is just terrible. Ouch. Uh, but funny, though, because you mentioned Shyamalan, and I was going to say, not only do I like The Village and Unbreakable, I like Lady in the Water, and I'm definitely oh, in a minority there. I didn't. Although I will say that The Happening is a terrible movie. I haven't seen The Happening. That, that's don't, where my... Don't. Just don't. Yeah. It's so bad. It's a terrible movie. I will I will argue that Shyamalan is a is an excellent and extremely talented filmmaker. I mean, if you look at any of his movies, not just, you know, from a writing perspective, but from the perspective of a, you know, an auteur, the the films that he puts together are so well, they're well shot, oh, yeah. they're de- so deliberate. Yes. They've got, you know, really great tonal consistency for the most part. He's just an excellent filmmaker. But, you know, for whatever reason, his last couple movies, I mean, I think it's unfortunate because, like you said, I think so much got banked on the name, you know, like after he made his reputation with Sixth Sense, like everybody got to expecting a certain type of movie from him. Yes, totally. And, and like, you know, especially the whole, like, twist ending thing, I think that unfortunately kind of, kind of, you know, shot him in the foot. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, I mean, and and to be fair, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable has a great twist ending that, you know, I will say I did not see coming at all, and yet that scene still gets me every time, the last scene, where it's just like, oh, my God, you know. (laughs) This was not a coincidence. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think he, he makes great films, um, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think we've heard the last of him. He's got this, but I, I don't know. He's got this Night Chronicles thing going, which is, I guess he's producing these films and they're sort of based on maybe some of his ideas, but he's letting other people write and direct them. Like the first one of these is Devil, which is coming out. I don't know when it's coming out. This It's soon. coming out soon. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to interject there because so I went to see, I went to the movies last week. And they played the trailer for this, right? Right. Um, oh, yeah. And the, the text came up because they don't say that he's not directing it. It's from, like, from, the, Shyamalan. from the mind yeah. of. Yes. Yeah. And people, booed, people booed. It was booed. I, yeah. It was booed when I was there. Everyone goes, oh, yeah. really? You know, like, and, and I'm surprised because this was not like a theater where that, I feel like there's there's a lot of that often happening. But man, we all, my friends and I all kind of looked at each other like, holy Ouch. crap, we didn't realize that, you know. I mean, we know that he's, he's, his reputation and credibility has gone downhill, but that was pretty brutal. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, he's a, he's a guy who's ripe for a comeback if he gets the right Although vehicle. if you see the um, online, there's a parody. So that movie's about like, you know, a bunch of people get shot, like stuck in an elevator in a tall building and yes. there's like a, like a demon or something in there with them. I don't know. Devil. There's, he did a parody of it um, with people trapped on it, including himself in it, uh, of people trapped on an escalator. <laughs> which is which is actually pretty funny. So there's like a two minute trailer of this movie about these three people who get stuck on an escalator. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Can this career be saved? I I, I think he's got the talent. So it's just give a him give him of, give him five to ten years yeah. to sort of you know cool off, find go find himself, and I think I think you will see him come back with something that that will everybody will go. Hey, remember M Night Shyamalan? Bet you bet you thought he was like dead or something, but, but no. He's back and this movie is good. That that's that's the hope. Uh, he he, he does happen. occasionally talk about. I think he took it as a personal affront that Unbreakable wasn't a hit, but he now well, talks yeah. occasionally about about doing a sequel, which I would love because I love the first movie. Yeah, although I heard last I heard was that one of the ideas for this Night Chronicle series was going to be somebody doing. S- you know, Pop, taking the idea man. he had, 
taking the idea he had for a sequel and turning it into a separate unconnected yeah. movie. So, well, well, well no, see. he also said he still wants to do the sequel, but that is his one idea for a villain um, that he had briefly thought about including in the first movie was going to be broken off. But he said so because I think I saw the same interview. I think you're talking about, and I think he said. So the Unbreakable sequel will be something else. So that's, you know, that's promising, maybe. That would be nice. Yeah, I mean, like, definitely. I think the big, as you said, I think he took it very personally. My, my cousin, who is a huge movie aficionado, you know, will always point at the scene in Lady of the Water where uh, that basically involves the, the sort of brutal killing of a film critic and say, there's something wrong yeah. when you've got to put that into a movie. Like, clearly... You know, you have some issues that you need to work out. Uh, and I think he's probably not wrong about that. And and I hope that he works through those issues because, again, I do think he's a really talented filmmaker. Yeah, I yes. Let's I, that that scene. That scene is mystifying and terrible. And yeah, in an I, otherwise I wonder. movie that I really liked. But, you know, well, it, again, it had its faults. It's it's a. It's, it's interesting because it's this sort of parable fairy tale kind of movie. Although, and it was not marketed as such, which was one of the big reasons I think it flopped. Yeah, I, was, it was Star, was, but Stardust was better. Stardust was – I liked Stardust, but I don't know. There's something about Lady in the Water that – it may have just been, the, you know, the point at which I saw it or, you know, what was uh, – You're feeling good that day? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really – I thought it was really good. And speaking of movies with a great score, it has a fantastic score by James Newton Howard. Um, who does I think almost all of them nice Sean was stuff. I think he, I think he does them all. Yeah, yeah. I like the un- yeah, I he, like the unbreakable score. But, yeah. yeah, that's a great score as well, and he did that. He did that too, that's and I think that they're a good. Uh, they're a good pair. I was thinking though, as you were talking about about uh, Shyamalan, I was thinking, I wonder if I wonder if Robert Rodriguez is is sort of entering that period where you know some of his material is just a little bit too self indulgent and um, not so great. I well, he's, he's in his comfort zone, right? Because he's just making yeah. movies for himself down in down in Austin, like in, right. his, in his house. I, I, I mean, I'll say I liked uh, I liked both Rodriguez's half of uh, Grindhouse, and I saw Machete this past week, and actually thought it was pretty darn good. I mean, it, it set out to do a certain thing, and I think it really did that to a T. I um, no, I, I actually yeah, I liked Planet Terror. Uh, I mean, of the two parts, I mean, Planet Terror was the tighter and less sprawling of the two. And uh, I did see Machete, and I and I and I liked I more or less liked Machete. It was a little bit it was a little bit long, a little bit episodic, but um, yeah, I didn't. I enjoyed it a great deal, and I I I, I, I laughed throughout, and and uh, I've since you know, I've I've read a lot of a lot of the criticism of it, in particular some of the political criticism of it, and and, it, and it's kind of I think a little bit too much, but um, it's it's not bad. Uh, it could be probably. Half an hour shorter than it is, but uh, yeah, my my friend said uh, cut ten minutes of people talking and replace it with you know more killing people. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you're there. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. For a movie that started as a joke, yes, oh yeah, joke trailer. Um, it, it fulfilled on exactly the movie that you wanted to see after that trailer, which was pretty impressive. Is he a and ghost or is he just a wronged guy? No, no, he's man. he's a wronged. He's an ex federale yeah. who is who has been he's, left for dead basically, uh, and, right. and, and come comes, back, comes for, back with his machete for for revenge. Mm. Right. You know That's what else is you, you know what else is getting made? Hobo with a shotgun. Yes, I heard that with Rutger Hauer. With Rutger Hauer looking about 155 years old, but. And he's not a day over 175. <laughs> I've seen hobos on fire by the railroad gate. <laughs> I've. I've heard the cries of a shotgun ringing of out that have been, in the that depot. That have been released too many times. Time to cash in. <laughs> 
I had a conversation with somebody about Blade Runner the other day saying, I, you know, maybe for me it's never been one of those, like, you know, a lot of people cited it as such a great movie. Uh, and it's like, I, I think it's, I've enjoyed the one version of it that I've seen, which was the director's cut version. So I guess that's the middle version, the version that was not the theatrical release with the voiceover, but the version that was not the final cut that was released later. It's like, let me tell you, that's a movie that's been released way too many oh, times yeah. now. And and also, I, I really dislike Ridley Scott for meddling in I think, you know, I'm a very strong believer that once the movie leaves the hands of the filmmaker and enters that of the audience, that basically you should shut the hell up as a filmmaker. I, I um, like the and, idea of saying, look, the, we we all hated the voiceover. Let's try it without, right? But I've, I've heard people who say that they really like the voiceover version and that to them is a pure version because it was sort of the original. And they think that, you know, there is a – there's an aspect of the noir, hard-boiled noir detective to it that makes sense. Right. I've seen the original and the final cut of Blade Runner. And so one with narration and one without. And what I'll tell you is, while I appreciated things about them and some of the dialogue and and the art direction, I find both of them sleep-inducing. And in fact, both times I inflicted this movie on my wife, she fell asleep. (laughs) Both times. That's That's a perfect batting average of putting my wife to sleep and really driving me close to the edge of sleep, too. I... If we were talking about movies that I think are overrated, I, I have to say it. I think Blade Runner is is as fascinating as it is sort of psychologically. Um, I, I don't really like it. <laughs> Based on a book that is that is very different from the movie. Oh, yes, you know, very different. Clearly has a very different vision from Philip K. Dick's original novel. Um, and I think that's, again, the other the reason that I – I mean, I just don't I, – I, you know, Ridley Scott basically came out at one point and said – I think, you know, Deckard's blah, 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 blah. You know, I won't go which way we're not gonna he sound, was. Come on. We're not going to sound a spoiler. No, no. I'm not, it's that old. He thinks that Deckard uh, was a replicant, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, I, you know, I respect that as his own interpretation. But I think that, you know, it's it basically, again, once it's out of your hands, like, you know, shut the hell up and let the audience. Like, I feel because the movie leaves it kind of, you know, ambiguous. And <laughs> Well, I don't know. The first 15 years I knew about that movie, I didn't even give that a serious bit of consideration as a possibility so i, yeah, I didn't even find it ambiguous yeah okay that's fair even but i mean i think you know i think that it should be left up to the audience to make their own interpretation that's that's my opinion and that you know the weight of the filmmaker should not interfere with that right but you know what the score holds up pretty well See, that's part of the reason that I, I, I pass out when I try to watch it. Is, is that that's Angelus? Angelus? Yeah. Angelus yeah, yeah, just yeah, wants yeah, to yeah. put me – just wants me to pull – it's actually not. It's it's actually just his Chariots of Fire theme slowed down. I was going to say, that would be awesome. Oh, that would be awesome no, if you just no. remade that movie with the Chariots of Fire theme instead. No, no. Listen, no, listen it one seventh of speed. Listen to the score. Listen to the score on its own. Listen okay. to the score on its own. It's terrific. Are there any movies that are uh, that are on the way or that you've seen recently that are coming to video that you would like to recommend to our massive uh, incomparable movie audience who has already shut off their iPods and flung them into the sea because this podcast has gone on too long? Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass. Kick ass. Just out on, on, well, DVD. I think it's been out now for, well, by the time people hear this, probably, what, a month, six weeks. But So you like Kick-Ass with, yeah, ma- with the foul-mouthed little girl. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that was the thing where um, – I uh, I wasn't really familiar with the graphic novel on which it was based, but um, read the graphic novel before I saw the movie, and so I kind of I knew kind of what to expect going in, and it it improves some things on the graphic novel, and it and it makes 
some compromises, but I think for the most part, uh, the improvements outweigh the deficiencies. And I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was really good. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the sequel. I will say that I think the first two thirds of it is excellent. And then I think it kind of last act, it, it loses its way a little bit. A bit, a bit, but um, it, it, yeah. it, 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 it's such a great, um, like parody, not not quite parody, satire on on the whole superhero genre um, for about the first two thirds, three fourths of it, and then the last act really turns it into wait, now you're actually making a superhero movie, and so you've kind of become the thing that you're satirizing. And I think that's where it lost me. But I think that the first two thirds of it is really, really good. Yeah, no, and um, the actors are great in it, and uh, you know, Nick Cage hams it up beautifully, and uh, no, it's. Um, it's it's well worth seeing, and uh, I'm going to watch it again on DVD pretty soon, but uh, um, well worth it. Well worth it. All right. What about you, Dan? Uh, I'm, I was sort of flipping through and seeing what the, what's coming out soon, because I think there were a couple things coming out in uh, in the next month or two that I did want to see. You want to see that movie about the owls that saved the magical uh, fairyland, right? <laughs> that was totally one of them. How did you know? Um, and the one with, were... and there's, is there one with chihuahuas? I... I don't I'm want sure to ever see anything, anything remotely with with chihuahuas in it. I think the two that I sort of see as I'm flipping through what's coming out is um, there's a, a movie coming out called uh, Buried with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. Which has a – it's basically about a guy who gets, you know, sort of – a guy who's like a military contractor in, uh, in, in Iraq, I think, and gets like – kidnapped and buried basically in, in a coffin and it, so it's got this fascinating it's had some great trailers too um you know very atmospheric uh there's an aspect of it that you know they've been really playing up in a lot of the posters and and trailers almost a a, a Saul Bass sort of uh like uh, ethic design ethic that reminds you of like the old Hitchcock openings and I think there is something sort of I like the I love those movies that are based on those really really constrained sets I think of I think again of Hitchcock movies like uh Rope and lifeboat where it's really confined into a a, a single location um and it, and i think especially for a movie that is that is clearly literally claustrophobic um i think that that that's a really interesting idea so i have no idea if it's good or not but it's it, it strikes me as something that's that's different and and unique um and i don't know if, if reynolds has has what it takes to pull it off but uh, I think that's I would certainly be interested in finding out. And then the other thing I think I was really interested in seeing was um, actually the social network, um, because I think I, I really like David Fincher. I think he's a he's a very talented director uh, and it strikes. And I like the guy who they get to play lead to Jesse Eisenberg, who uh, last year uh, was in Zombieland and did a fantastic job in that movie. And if uh, you ever want to go see him in another really good role, uh, a movie called Roger Dodger that he did many years ago with Campbell Scott is also really good. Um, and so those, those are the interesting uh, intersection of that along with this story of – I don't know if the story of Facebook is really that interesting. But the the idea that you know it interested both uh, Fincher and Aaron Sorkin who wrote the screenplay enough to make a movie out of it suggests to me that there's there's something there. News broke this week, or or maybe last week, as you're listening to this, dear listener, that um, a deal has been cut between Stephen King, Universal, yeah. and, um, and Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, and they are going to make The Dark Tower not as a movie and not as a TV series, but as a movie and a TV series, and another movie and another season of a TV series and another movie. 
This is this is the most <laughs> ambitious thing I've heard since the week before when they announced that they were going to turn Sandman into a TV show. Um, and, <laughs> and then we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, we'll save that for another podcast. But still, I, I love the Dark Tower, and and I, I you know if if it's going to be done, then I agree that it needs to be done in a suitably sprawling epic fashion. And honestly, I could spend an entire podcast talking about the Dark Tower. Um, but not, not this podcast, not this one, but you know a separate a separate episode. I I just in some ways even with the you know people like Ron Howard you know names like that behind it part of me wonders if this will ever get done just because it's so ambitious yeah and and there's a lot of talk about it and and previously in fact the the rights were held by J uh, J Abrams and uh, uh, Damon Lindelof and, Damon and Carl Cuse yeah. yeah and so and they couldn't figure out how to get a handle on it and after several years and so you know i think howard's you know ron howard is a you know has made some good movies in the past but he's also you know turned out a lot of really really bland studio pictures in recent years and so it's it's a weird pairing from that regard to see him involved in that and uh, akiva goldsman who is the writer has quite a uh spotty resume lost in space <laughs> Uh, I believe he also <clears throat> wrote uh, Batman and Robin. <laughs> yeah, Lost in Space, Batman and Robin, but also um, Beautiful Mind. A Beautiful, Beautiful Mind. Mind. And actually is... Uh, and it's writing parts of Fringe. Fringe, yeah. It yeah. actually brought some... So some... up and down, up and down. Yeah, but it's um, an interesting... I, I think it's a great idea, and the idea that they would cast... Um, they would cast the people and they would be in the movies and the TV shows and they would shoot it presumably in advance. My guess is too that the TV series would be one of these 13 episode jobs and not like a full sprawling 22 episode kind of thing and that they would shoot in, in an extended period of time. They would shoot a movie and some episodes and then another film with the same crew and cast which is I think never been done. So and yeah and I mean obviously that would be a lot for an actor to to commit to so I find it I'm going to find it really interesting to see who they get for that. I read an interview with Stephen King today uh, asking him about it and asking him one of the questions they asked him was well how do you feel about this on you know NBC as opposed to something like HBO because this is you know the the Dark Tower is a pretty grim at times violent and brutal uh piece of work. And, you know, can you do that justice on on broadcast television as opposed to on, you know, like something like HBO? And he said, well, you know, every time I, I feel like I've worked on, in an environment like that, which has constrained me a little bit, it really challenges me to find a creative solution. Um, and so I think he, he seems sort of intrigued in the challenges that that would raise. Me, I'm a, I'm a little more skeptical maybe uh, of how that's going to pan out. But I, I think it will it will certainly be interesting to see. All right. I predict we'll all be mummies by the time the thing comes out. <laughs> that's that's right. But the good news, Ben, is that Mummy Vision will have launched by then. And we'll be able <laughs> to see Vision. it in our um, tombs. In our sarcophagi. Well, you'll, you'll have to put on the 3D wrap around your head to see it in full 3D in Mummy Vision. All right. Well, I think that we've done enough damage for one day. Until the next installment of the Incomparable Podcast, I want to thank uh, my guests, Dan Warren. Thank you. You're welcome. No, wait, that doesn't make any sense. And Ben Boychuk. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. This is Jason Snell. Thanks for listening to The Incomparable. See you next time. This has been the Incomparable Podcast. I can't believe Dan Warren liked Hudson Hawk. Visit us on the web at theincomparable.com. 